Welcome to Brainwaves Briefs, continuing medical audiocation for neurologists and trainees in medicine. I'm Jim Siegler. Today we'll be talking about infectious causes of myelopathies. For the sake of time, I won't be getting into the idiosyncrasies of diagnosis and management, but we'll be focusing on how to build your differential. Let's get started. First, when should you suspect an infectious myelopathy? In immunocompetent patients, symptoms include fever with or without an antecedent illness, weakness, lack of coordination, back pain, and sometimes saddle anesthesia or incontinence of stool or urine. HIV and immunocompromised patients may present more indolently with subacute weakness and numbness and a dermatomal rash as in the case of VZV myelitis. Once you've reached a reasonable suspicion for a potentially infectious myelopathy, there are several methods for conceptualizing a differential. It's probably easiest to create a mind map where you've grouped your pathogens by class, viruses, bacteria, parasites, and fungi, but this is arduous and technically imprecise. Also, you'd think the CSF profile would be helpful in organizing your differential diagnosis. Neutrophilia associated with bacterial causes of myelitis, lymphocytic pleocytosis with viral or fungal causes, erythrocytosis with herpes, etc. But this system is also flawed. It'd be better to organize your differential according to pretest probability, considering the patient's travel history, immune status, and animal or occupational exposures. I usually start by checking HIV status, because it dramatically affects your differential with fungal, VZV, and CMV myelitis almost never occurring in immunocompetent persons. After checking HIV, you can organize your differential based on risk factors. For example, if you see a young guy from Africa or South America with B symptoms and a rapidly progressive lower extremity weakness, I would be thinking of dengue, schistosoma, teneosolium, and HTLV-1. This is not exactly the case for patients in America, where I'd feel more concerned about West Nile or Borrelia infections. Regarding immune status, chronic untreated HIV increases the risk of its associated progressive vacuolar myelopathy, the tabes dorsalis of syphilis, varicella zoster, and fungal causes of myelitis. Interestingly, cases of quote-unquote CSF escape myelitis have been reported in patients treated with heart. It's thought that the discordant responses to antiretroviral drugs in the CNS and periphery may account for cases of myelitis or encephalitis in relatively well-controlled HIV patients. As a final alternative to your myelitis, you could distinguish the infectious etiologies based on exam or neuroimaging. Some pathogens simply don't care what part of the core they affect, like Epstein-Barr and Dengue, but most others have some sort of anatomic predisposition. For instance, pure anterior horn cell involvement is characteristic of polio, enterovirus, West Nile, and tick-borne myelitis. Some causes have pure lateral tract involvement, and you should be thinking of HTLV-1 or HIV. If the conus or cauda equina are involved, think of the herpes family viruses, especially HSV-2, EBV, and CMV. These causes of myelitis are probably the easiest to remember since the cauda and conus are nearest to the genitals, so I think of herpes. The size of lesions may also be helpful, with longer cord lesions indicating processes like mycoplasma pneumoniae, CMV, and EBV. Outside of the cord, spinal roots are preferentially affected by Borrelia species in West Nile, as you would see in cases of Guillain-Barre, neurosarcoidosis, and carcinomatous meningitis. HIV can produce a transverse myelitis in a number of ways, but its classic vacuolar myelopathy has a predilection for the dorsal columns and lateral corticospinal tract, quite similar to what you would see in a B12 deficiency. That being said, you should always be sure that B12 levels are normal or are actively being repleted. VZV and syphilis have a similar penchant for attacking the dorsal columns as well. A side note about syphilitic myelitis. Tabes dorsalis only accounts for fewer than 5% of patients with neurosyphilis, and it has a very characteristic course you should be familiar with. Tabes starts with lightning pains, then progresses to ataxia, 
culminating in a spastic paraparesis after several years with dysautonomia and atrophy of the dorsal columns. Other symptoms and the timing of symptom progression can be helpful in building your differential. For instance, a patient with fever, encephalopathy, and cord lesions indicates an encephalomyelitis, which if not ADEM or multiple sclerosis can only be caused by a handful of infectious processes. Tick-borne encephalitis, where 10% of cases involve the cord, West Nile, EBV, and LCMV. Regarding the timing of symptoms, say you've got a patient who presented with an acute flaccid paraparesis, this might raise my suspicion for a West Nile, enterovirus, or herpes family myelitis, but had the same patient presented with several weeks or months of a spastic paraparesis and bladder dysfunction, I'd be thinking of parasites like Schistosoma mansoni and retroviral agents like HTLV-1 and HIV. If HIV is suspected, you should check serum and CSF viral quants due to the possibility of that CSF escape myelitis. Before we conclude, a quick word on intramedullary and extramedullary abscesses. They're not really a cause of myelitis per se, but they present like a myelitis or radiculitis with back pain, weakness, or incontinence in about 60% of cases. The imaging pattern is characteristic with rim enhancement. These abscesses can be caused by virtually any bacterium, so the differential is broad. They often seed hematogenously in a central area of the cord or outside it, and usually require drainage with protracted antimicrobial therapy. The remaining treatment options for infectious myelitis is broad and should be targeted to the pathogen. This isn't the case for most viral myelopathies, which are often treated supportively. HIV should be treated with heart, plus or minus corticosteroids, if iris is suspected. HSV and VZV respond best to 10 to 14 days of intravenous acyclovir, CMV, gancyclovir, and HHV6 phoscarnet. Steroids are useful in severe cases of EBV, enterovirus, tick-borne encephalitis, dengue, and LCMV, but evidence is limited. Treatment for fungal, tuberculous, and bacterial causes should be directed at the pathogen. Prognosis is dependent on the patient's underlying immune status, the degree of cord involvement, and functional status. The patient who's left with a spastic tetraplegia sadly doesn't stand much of a chance. That's all we've got for you today. I wish we had more time to talk about diagnostics and treatments since infectious myelopathies may pose a clinical challenge. Your take-home points for now. Infectious causes of myelopathy can be distinguished with a good history and neuroimaging. HIV testing should be a part of your initial diagnostic battery because only HIV patients really get fungal, VZV, or CMV myelitis. And HIV can produce its own vacuolar myelopathy of the dorsal column and lateral corticospinal tracts as well. Pure anterior horn cell involvement with a flaccid paraparesis is suggestive of polio, West Nile, tick-borne encephalitis, and enteroviruses, while myelitis with polyradiculitis is seen in Lyme disease and West Nile. There are a lot of similarities between infectious and non-infectious causes of spinal cord disease, so you should maintain an open mind with your differential. West Nile and enteroviruses mimic ALS. HIV is a lot like B12 deficiency. Lyme disease and West Nile can produce a radiculitis that's not unlike carcinomatous meningitis. Treatment of these diseases with microbial therapy should be directed at the bug, but most viral myelitides are managed supportively. For a more thorough review of infectious myelitis, I recommend the Continuum article by Jennifer Lyons in the April 2015 issue, or an older 2002 paper by Berger and Sabet in Seminars in Neurology. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. 
If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Ryan Little. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. Brainwaves.